0: Ah yes, you're listening to Life 101, where we live in faith every day. This is Line Upon Line, where we study God's Word, line by line. And I'm your host, Pastor Adrian. That Isaiah asks in Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 9, Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? He answers his own question: Then that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. For precept that is religious instruction must be upon precept, precept upon precept. Line upon line, line upon line, here are the top, and there are the top. So if you're serious about your walk with God and want to understand true doctrine, it's time to get your Bible and follow along with the study God's word. It's time to be meaningful to know. Get your Bible. Tell a friend about this study. Tell your pastor about this study. Let's get into God's word, line upon line. Yes, yeah, so we are in the book of Revelation. This is a book that has caused a lot of confusion. It's a book that is mysterious to a lot of people. It's a book that people start reading. It triggers their imagination. Sometimes it triggers their fears. And it's a book that many people have given up on. But by God's grace, we can read it line upon line, and we can come to understand what is the message in the book of Revelation. We began last week in chapter 1, and we covered the first few verses. I will just go quickly back over them and then get into the rest of chapter 1, God willing, today. Let's open with a word of prayer and get into the book of Revelation. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, ever so grateful to you for your loving kindness, your mercy, your tender mercies. And Father, it's no secret to us that the world is just unraveling. It's a very chaotic world. It's a world that... Those things that people have confidence in are losing their bearings, and we need to have confidence only in the Word of God. And Father, we just thank you that you've given us your prophetic Word, so that while everyone around us can walk in darkness, uh, we have the option of walking in the light of your Word. So we thank you, Father, for this incredible book of Revelation. We thank you, God, for those who are tuning in, because they have a hunger and a thirst. And they want to understand. And so, Father, we pray that you'll bless our hunger and thirst for your righteousness. And that we will be filled by your word. We ask all of this, Lord, in the mighty name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Revelation, chapter 1. We'll just quickly read the first few verses just to get the flow. Uh, We did uh, unpack these last week. So if you missed the last week's study, just go into the archive. And I just picked up last week's study. we will just quickly start again. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not of St. John the Divine, as some Bibles indicate. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. that belongs to him. Which God gave unto him. So he got it from God. So it's Jesus Christ and God the Father. And so the revelation came to Jesus from God the Father. Why? To show unto his servants. This is not for everybody. It's for the servants of Jesus Christ who will take these words seriously and dig to understand them. So God gave it to Christ to show unto his servants, that is the servants of Christ, things which must shortly come to pass. So as the world around us becomes more and more chaotic, as the world around us begins to unravel, and people begin to panic, the servants of God can look and understand what is happening and where this is all leading. He showed us, or is to show us things which must shortly come to pass. And then notice, he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So when John receives this revelation, and revelation is the the apocalypsis, it's the unveiling, it's the revealing. So it's not hiding anymore, it's now unfolding and and disclosing the plan of God. But John receives it signified. That is, it's coded. It's, it's in symbolic language. And this is where a lot of people get, right from the beginning, they get shipwrecked in terms of trying to understand Revelation because it is a symbolic book. So most of what we read and what John saw and heard, these are symbols. And we have to use the rest of the Bible to unpack and understand and decode what these symbols are. A lot of people want to take the book of Revelation literally. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature, and it therefore must be read in that genre. Other books of the Bible, such as Genesis, we read literally. And there are exceptions in Genesis where, okay, maybe this is symbolic, or this is symbolic. Whereas in Revelation, we read it symbolically, and then there are exceptions. There are things that are literal. But it's a very different type of uh, text than other parts of the Bible. He says here that he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So we're going to get it from John. But it came to John by an angel. That angel received it from Christ in a signified form. And Christ received it from God. So the words that we're reading come from God. This is the revelation that came from God and was given to Christ then packaged and given to an angel to give to John, to give to us, so that we can know what's going to happen shortly. Now John, let's hear about John. To his servant John, who bear record, faithfully bore record, of the word of God. So he gave us what was in the word of God, but not just that. And the testimony of Jesus Christ. So two things. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And, and, and Christ's testimony fulfills the word of God. And of all things that he saw. So John was privileged to see certain things. And he faithfully bear record of those things. Verse 3, one of my favorite verses. Blessed, blessed is he that reads, So that's what I'm doing now. I'm reading the book of Revelation. And I'm claiming this blessing. But not just the one who reads. And they that hear the words of this prophecy. So for those of you tuning in, and with a hunger and thirst to understand, you're blessed for hearing the words of this prophecy. And I'm blessed for reading them. And so this is a wonderful blessing. But the the tense in the Greek, is not once and done, it's ongoing, it's continuous. So it's really, blessed is he that reads, and keeps reading, and they that hear, and keep hearing. Because as time unfolds, the prophetic word becomes more and more clear, more and more understandable. And these are our eyes, these words are our eyes. This is the lens through which we see the world around us. And if we just keep this commitment to read and reread and hear and hear again, then we will not be in the darkness. So blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy. But it's not just about reading and hearing and understanding what is going on in this darkness, what is going on in this dark world around us. Hey, as a result of studying this prophecy, we now understand what is going on in the world around us. That's not good enough. That is not good enough. That is not why God gave this revealing to Christ, to give to an angel, to give to John, to give to us, just so that we can know what is going on in the world around us. That's not enough. What the purpose is, the next phrase. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear, the words of this prophecy, and keep And keep those things which are written therein. And that word keep is is terontos in the Greek, and it means to guard. So once you have this, you've got to guard it. You've got to protect it. You've got to make sure no one takes it away from you. So we've got to keep those things which are written therein. So there's going to be instructions in here. That's what we have to hold on to. And the rest is context around why these instructions are important so that we can then hold on to this. Why? For the time is at hand. So from God's perspective, everything is in place, and now it's just a matter of unfolding. And so these things are going to shortly come to pass, and the time is at hand. And, and a lot of people get um, tripped up here, because when the book says, when the prophecy says, these things must shortly come to pass, And the time is at hand. People are saying, well, I don't see the end of the world yet. I don't see the end of the world yet. They they, they automatically assume that apocalypse means the end of the world, the climactic end of the world. I don't see the apocalypse. That's not what apocalypse means. The Greek word apocalypsis means the revealing. And when the word says the time is at hand, and these things must shortly come to pass, uh, think of the book of Revelation. I'll I'll use this as a metaphor. Think of the book of Revelation as prophecy as a train, a long freight train. It's carrying a lot of freight. And I, you know, when I was a kid, we lived by a, a train station. And I would look over the from the window and see the trains always passing. A lot of freight trains would go by. And so they have an engine. And then they have all this freight that they're carrying. And then at the very end, there's the caboose. Well, these things that must shortly come to pass and the time being at hand for these things Think of it as a freight train. This is a uh, this prophetic word is carrying a lot of freight. And there's an engine that is pulling the freight. That comes first. Then there are all the cars. And finally, there's the caboose. The climactic end that everybody is looking for is the caboose. But the prophecy is about the whole train. So when it says these things must shortly come to pass, and when it says the time is at hand, it's speaking of the whole train, not just the caboose. So the very first thing that passes is the engine. And then we're in the time of these things. And then all the freight that it's carrying, that unfolds. And so we're in the time of these things. And finally, some, some freight trains are really long, and you wonder, how long is this train? Or maybe you've been driving, and you, know, you have to wait. The train um, signal comes down, say a train is passing, and you've got to wait. And the train is just taking forever. Like, how long is this train? But finally, the caboose passes. And then the guards, the the, the railings come up, and you can drive again. Well, that's like Revelation, where it's carrying all of this prophetic freight. And you're wondering, how long is this train? Like, when will the end finally come? But it is coming, my friends. And when the word says the time is at hand, and these things must shortly come to pass, very, very accurate. John was in the first century, and he, we're going to see he's writing to these churches, and he's saying these things are going to happen very shortly, and indeed they do. And, and they have been happening, and the, the freight has been passing ever since. And we're coming up to close to the end of the train. And all the scoffers and the mockers are going to be in for a very unpleasant surprise. But the servants of God, who take this seriously, are going to realize this is, it, it's all happening and it's speeding up, it's like uh, Christ explained to it. it's like labor pains. And, and at first they're few and far between, but then they get closer and closer and more intense, and that's what the world is going through right now, the labor pains that are leading up to the final birth. And Christ did warn us, and this is why it's important for us to study this prophecy, that he that shall endure unto the end, this is in Matthew 24, verse 13, he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. So we really cannot say we are saved until we have endured unto the end. Because the same prophecy, if you read the rest of Matthew 24, Christ makes it clear. Many, many are going to, the, wax of many, the, the love of many is going to wax cold, and many will betray one another. So not everybody endures to the end. Back to Revelation in verse 4 now, John begins the letter. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. So there were seven churches, specific churches, that were on a mail route, that were in what we call Turkey today, the, the Roman province of Asia at the time. And John was writing to these churches to say, the time is at hand. And all of these churches have been wiped out by the very thing that John warned John to the seven churches, and these seven churches were chosen specifically because they all had different attributes, and we're going to get into those attributes in chapter 2 and 3. And collectively, these attributes speak to the characteristics of the entire church between the time of John and the time when Christ returns. So every congregation can look at this letter and see the things that, that please God and the things that displease him and evaluate their own congregation, and see what the expectations are that God has of our congregations. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace. So This is God's will, that we have grace and peace. So uh, despite all of the climactic occurrences that are going to take place in this book of Revelation, it's God's will that we have grace and peace. From him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. So there's God the Father, and these seven spirits, these seven angels, which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. He's the faithful witness. That word is martyrs. He's a He was a faithful one he was martyr. Which means he's, he's true to his witness unto death. And in Acts 1, you see him calling the apostles, saying to them, You will be my witnesses, where all of them had to be faithful in their testimony unto death. Who is the faithful witness? And here in English, my King James that I'm using, it says the first begotten of the dead. The Greek word begotten there is prototokos, prototokos. And that word is, the, the, way it should, the way they should have translated that is, if you have a strong, you can look this up. It's the firstborn of the dead. First, And even that word of, the, the uh, Greek pronoun ek, that would be better translated from. So he's the firstborn from the dead. He died. He was buried in the grave, in the sepulcher. And then he was born out of the grave. This is, my friends, what it means to be born again. So, you know, a lot of Christians running around saying, ah, I'm a born-again Christian. And what that does is it clouds and, 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 and hides the true meaning of what it means to be born again. And in fact, this same term, the uh, what he says, the first begot, begotten, which should be translated firstborn, the, 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 the pro, prototokos, the firstborn. In, in Colossians 1.18, they translate the very same word, but they translate it correctly. In Colossians 1.18, he says that he is the head of the body, the church. Look this up. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. And then listen. The firstborn from the dead. So somehow, they translated correctly here, that he is the prototokos, ek, from the nekros, the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. So, Colossians 1.18 translates that phrase perfectly, but here in Revelation 1 and verse 5, somehow they translated for the first begotten of the dead, which, you know, what does that actually mean? But what it means is, the death is not the end. So, we're all born and we all die. But then we can be born again. And I heard a saying once that said, uh, born twice, die once. Born once, die twice. That's a great saying, because there's a second death. There's the same way there's a second birth, there's a second death. And if you don't realize to be born again, if you don't realize the second birth, you're going to realize the second death. So this, my friends, is what it means to be born again. That you're born from the dead. You're resurrected into a new body. You know, when we're born, we're born with a body. And when we're born again, read 1 Corinthians 15, we're born with a new body. That's what it means to be born again. So he's the firstborn from the dead, and the prince or the chief of the kings of the earth. So all the kings of the earth are going to bow to Jesus Christ. And they're going to be Gentile kings, but then they're going to be, he's going to be the King of Kings, and there are going to be his own people that are going to be kings of the earth, and he's going to be over his people. He's the Prince of the Kings of the Earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And when we read this, many of us just genericize this. That God loves everybody and he's washed everybody from their sins. When if we read this in the context of the whole scripture, the whole narrative from Genesis, and particularly from Genesis 12 to Revelation 22, and we read the whole narrative of the Bible in context, The us is Israel. He has washed Israel, he has loved Israel, and he has washed Israel from Israel's sins. And this is all over the prophetic word, that this is what he would do, that he would would purge iniquity from Jacob. This is the prophetic word. And, And Revelation is not some brand new prophecy. Revelation is the culmination of all of the prophets before That it's it's the buckle on the belt. It brings everything together, puts it in chronological order. So we can now take all the previous prophecies and understand them. So, So God really, the only relationship that God has with man is through Abraham. And through Abraham's grandson, Israel, or Jacob. And so Gentiles have to be grafted into Israel to have a relationship with God. They have to come to God through Israel. And so God has loved Israel and has washed Israel from Israel's sins in his own blood. He came as the faithful Israelite to redeem Israel so that ultimately he can redeem all mankind. And from Jesus Christ, who's the faithful way to say that, and from his own blood. And then verse 6, and has made us. Who is us? Us is not generic. Us is Israel. He has made Israel according to his promise, according to his word. He promised that he would do this. And now he's done. And has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen and amen. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. But he says here in verse 6, he's made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. Again, the Bible is... Uh, it's a library. It's a book of many books. But all of the books, all of the prophets, in all of the different languages, the three different languages, I think it's 40 different countries, three different continents, it's, it's over you know, 2,000 years, I believe, it's been written. It, they're, they're all telling the same story. It's one narrative. It's one story. And it begins in the Torah, and it ends in Revelation. And it's all very cohesive. And if your understanding of the Bible is contradicted by any other book in the Bible, then you don't have the right understanding. Because the Bible does not contradict itself. So we need to line upon line, here a little, there a little. We need to put the whole story together. So here he says, he's made us kings and priests. Well, where does this, this just kind of thin air? It was just something like, hey, I've got a good idea. I'm going to make you kings and priests. Oh, thank you. Wow, that's great. We're kings and priests. Where does this come from? It comes from the Torah that this was the original promise. In Exodus 19 and verse 5, after giving them the entering into covenant with Israel, God says in Exodus 19, verse 5, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. So you're going to be above, you're going to be the head nation. You'll be above all people, for all the earth is mine. And verse 6, And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. You'll be a kingdom of priests. You'll be king priests over the earth and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak Unto unto the whole world. No, unto the children of Israel. So this is the covenant promise that God has entered into with Israel. They broke his covenant. And he didn't say to them, okay, because you've broken my covenant, I'm throwing you away. I will have nothing to do with you anymore. You broke my covenant. I'm going to replace you with some other people. I'm going to replace you with the church, or I'm going to replace you with Arabs. I've got nothing to do with you now. That's not at all what he says. He says, you've broken my covenant, although I was a husband to you. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wash you. And I'm going to make you clean. And I'm going to enter into a new covenant with you. That Jeremiah 31, 31. The new covenant is not with the whole world. The new covenant is with the house of Israel. And the house of Judah. The whole Bible tells one story. And from Genesis 12 to Revelation 22. It is the story about Israel. And how God will resolve the problem that came about in Genesis 3, the fall of mankind, how he promised in Genesis 3 to redeem mankind, but in Genesis 12 we see how. It's going to be done through Abraham, and ultimately through Abraham's grandson, Israel. And because Israel broke the covenant, but God is in uh, uh, an unconditional covenant with Abraham, then God does not reject Israel. Instead, he enters into a new covenant with them. And ultimately, it leads to the, the so it leads to Christ now coming to earth as the faithful Israel. Christ didn't come as a Gentile. He didn't he came as an Israel, and specifically he came as a Jew because he was specific to be fulfilling the promises, the outstanding promises that God has to Israel. The covenant that God has with Abraham, the covenant that God has with with Israel, with Jacob, the covenant that God has with David, that he had to come through the Davidic line. And so as the Gospels begin, when we studied Luke, it was very clear, he, he comes through the Davidic line, because there's a Davidic covenant. And God is fulfilling all of these covenants. He's not a liar. It's impossible for God to lie. He must fulfill his word. And so, this, this uh, here in Revelation 1 and verse 6, it's actually the fulfillment of Exodus 19 and verse 6. And now, now he's done it. He came himself in order to be the representative of Israel and faithfully live by the covenant so that the promises to Israel can be fulfilled in Israel should they accept him as their Savior. So he's made us kings and priests unto God his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Then verse 7. Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And notice this. So every eye is going to see him. But then specifically the Jews are called out. And they also, that is the Jews, which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. And we saw in Revelation 23, I Matthew 23 and verse 37 how Christ basically cursed Jerusalem and then told them that they will be desolate, which fulfills the prophecies in Isaiah, the prophecies in Jeremiah. Uh, these are multiple prophecies against Jerusalem. That Christ is telling them, this is these, these prophecies are going to be fulfilled. And Jerusalem will be desolate. And you won't see me again until you beg to see me. And you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And so in Luke 21 and verse 20, we see this prophecy that when you shall see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. And you only need to look at a map of the Middle East. To see that Jerusalem is surrounded by nations who hate her. Nations who want to see her obliterated. Nations who who, who want no Jew left alive. Nations who have armies that are getting ready, just waiting for the permission, waiting for the green light, to surround Jerusalem and make it desolate. And Christ tells us, when you see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, then know that its desolation is near. And that's the prophetic word, that Jerusalem will be be desolate. But the Jews are going to be saved by God himself. We see this in Zechariah 12. In Zechariah 12, in verse 1, it reads, The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel. God has a burden for Israel. According to the Torah, and just read Deuteronomy 3, really read Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, and you'll see the burden that God has for Israel. The the, the covenant burden. (laughs) The burden of the word of the Lord, not for the whole world, for Israel. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, says the Lord, which stretched forth the heavens. In case you're wondering which Lord we're talking about. This is the God. that that created the whole universe, which stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. He says in verse 2, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about. Well, how did these people get around it? Because these are the armies that Christ prophesied would surround Jerusalem to make her desolate. And now God is saying, when that happens, and and they move in to make it desolate, that's when I'm going to act. And I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup of trembling. It's going to be a terrifying terrifying experience for them. They think they have the upper hand. They think they're going to destroy all the Jews in Jerusalem. Because that's what Satan wants. That the house of Judah should be completely destroyed, so that God is unable to fulfill his promises, and he makes God a liar. And that the house of Israel should be completely destroyed, to make God a liar. But God's word cannot be broken. And so I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about, when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. So it's not just Jerusalem, it's all the Jews. They're going to be be in the siege against the, the entire house of Judah, and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people, that is all Gentile people all that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces. This is the word of God, my friends. That all that burden themselves with Jerusalem, that think that they can make Jerusalem the Islamic capital of the world, they shall be cut in pieces. Though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. So this global compact will all agree that yes, Jerusalem does not belong to the Jews, it needs to be taken from them, And we need to make it the capital of some other religion. And even though everybody agrees, and they're all against Jerusalem, God is for Jerusalem. God has promises for Jerusalem. That Satan wants, Babylon as the capital of the world, and wants to control Jerusalem, but make everybody look onto, onto Babylon and the Babylonian system. God from the beginning has established Jerusalem as the city of God. And he will not accept, even though all the people want to align with Satan and destroy Jerusalem, God will not accept it. He will not allow it. Though all the people of the earth be gathered together against Jerusalem, he's going to cut all those people in pieces. In that day, says the Lord, I will smite, this is the word of God, we're just reading the word of God, this is the ancient prophetic word, that when we put it together with revelation, we understand exactly the timing how this is all going to unfold. In that day, verse 4, Zechariah 12, says the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment, and his rider with madness. And I will open my eyes upon the house of Judah. So I'm going to save Judah. We need to go back to Deuteronomy 30 to understand why God is doing this. This These are ancient promises that he has made. And this this, uh, destruction of Judah and Israel is to drive them to repentance. And when they finally true wholeheartedly repent, He's going to fill them with His Holy Spirit. for the, for the Ultimately, for the blessing of all mankind, that all mankind will acknowledge that God's word is true. Everything that He says is true. And it happens exactly as He says it. I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness. And I will open my eyes upon the house of Judah, that is, I'm going to help Judah, and will smite every horse of the people, the people who are against Judah, with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, shall be my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. So they're going to acknowledge that God is finally acting for them. And although Jerusalem was made desolate, it hasn't come to a full end. And God is now acting to save Jerusalem. And once the rest of Judah sees that Jerusalem is being saved, they'll realize this is our strength. We are being saved by the Lord God. Verse 6. In that day will I make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among wood so so they're they're just going to be like this oven of fire that it's okay so it's like um you know team a against team b who's going to win well team a is a pile of wood and team b is a an oven of fire We're going to put the two together which team is going to win i I say the oven of fire is going to burn up all that wood and that's what's going to happen. All these nations that come against Jerusalem and against Judah. God says, in that day, I, God, will make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among the wood. And like a torch of fire in a sheep, And they shall devour, they shall destroy all the people round about. On the right hand and on the left. woe unto you if you came against Jerusalem with the devil's bidding to destroy Jerusalem. Because God is ultimately for Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place. Even in Jerusalem. this It's going to be so unbelievable. The, the heathen nations, the Gentile nations, are going to have such glory and such power and, and such a very clear agenda of what they're going to do with Jerusalem. And it's going to look like they're they're successful. This is there's no way to stop this. That we would never believe that the Jews will have control of Jerusalem again, and that the Jews will inhabit Jerusalem again. It'll be like it's out of the realm of possibility. It's it's not imaginable. And yet God says, even though all the people of the world are against Jerusalem, Jerusalem will be inhabited again. He says, and Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first. So the, the rest of Judah, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of, of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. So so it's not just Jerusalem that God is going to save. He's going to save all of Judah. and 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 he wants the Jews to realize it's all of Judah. That he's for. Although he's going to establish himself in Jerusalem. He's for all of Judah. In that day. Shall the Lord defend. The inhabitants of Jerusalem. So this is why. Those that pierced him. Will recognize him. And this is why when Christ. Was on earth and he was leaving. About to be destroyed. About to be crucified. He said. You won't see me again. Until you say. Matthew 23.37. Until you say. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. In that day, in the end time, this is the caboose now. This is the end of it. Shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David. David was a powerful, fearless warrior. You know when he, uh, when Saul was coming back from the, 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 uh, the battle, they said, you know, Saul has killed his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands. David was a, was a powerful, mighty warrior, and the, the weakest, in Jerusalem, at this time, when, when the pagan nations, the heathen nations are coming in to destroy, the weakest Jew, will have the strength of David. And the house of David shall be as God. Wow. This is the prophetic word. I'm I'm, I'm not making this up. I'm just reading the ancient prophets, the ancient prophetic word. That the house of David will be as God. That God is going to be totally for them. He's going to totally empower them. He's going to pour out his spirit upon them. And they're going to have the upper hand. And the whole world is going to acknowledge that the God of the universe is the God of Judah and the God of Israel. And the house of David shall be as God and the angel of the Lord before them to put down the enemies. Verse 9. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations. Warning, 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 warning. Warning, 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 warning. Take heed. This is the word of God. It shall come to pass in that day that I, God, will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. How dare you attack my capital city? How dare you attack the word of God that says that Jesus Christ's throne will be established in Jerusalem forever? So in that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And notice this, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. This is the prophetic word in Joel. If you read Joel chapter 2, and this is when when you see in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, 2,000 years ago, when Peter believed this is the end time, and he said this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Well, that was just a foretaste of what's going to happen in the end time. That when we read what happened in Acts 2, that's just a foretaste of what is actually going to happen at the end. When God is going to pour out his spirit Upon his people. He says, I will pour out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And again, go back and read Deuteronomy 30. This is all fulfilling what is in the Torah. The story, the Bible tells one story, and the, the version of Christianity that we're being fed, it just it completely divorces itself from the, the, the narrative of the Bible. So we need to make sure that whatever we're believing, it actually holds together with the entire the entire uh, corpus of, of, of scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. He says, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. This is it. So in Revelation 1, verse 6 we saw that or verse 7, I believe it was, that uh, they're going to look upon, that he's going to return in the, the by, with the clouds, and they're going to look upon him whom they have pierced. And here, here they are. These are the Jews. And so we, we use the scripture to interpret scripture. Who are they that have pierced him? It's the house of Judah. And so now God says, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. This is when they finally acknowledge that Jesus Christ is their God. They shall look upon him. And he's going to pour out his spirit upon them. And they shall look upon him. Those that, that, they, they, they that pierced him. And they shall mourn for him. As one mourns for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him. As one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. So they will finally acknowledge. And some of the Jews have horrible things to say about Jesus Christ. And and some of the Jews are involved in some wickedness. Some very deep wickedness. But they're finally going to be driven to this place of deep repentance. And they're going to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is their God. And that they, in fact, their ancestors, in fact, pierced him. And crucified him. Back to Revelation 1 and verse 8. He says, I am Alpha and Omega. So these are the first and last letters. Of the Greek alphabet. I'm the first and the last. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, says the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. So, in case you were wondering who Jesus Christ is, he's the Almighty. He makes that very, very clear. And when John opened his letter in verse 4, He says, John to the seven churches, which are in Asia, grace be to you and peace, and this is from God, from him which is, and which was, and which is to come. And now Christ, in Revelation 1, verse 8, says he's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says Lord, which is, and which was, and which was to come, the Almighty. So which one is the Almighty? Is God the Father the Almighty, or is Jesus Christ the Almighty? And and nowhere in here do you see anything about the Trinity. There's no Trinity here. There's God the Father, and there's Jesus Christ. And you can read the entire book of. In fact, if you find Trinity in the Book of Revelation, you let me know, because this this is it now. This is the end, final, the final revelation from God. And what we see is Christ is on a throne, and the Father is on a throne. And so we see this from the very beginning in John one and verse one. In the beginning, in the very beginning, was the Word. And the word was with god and the word was god the same was in the beginning with god all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made jesus christ is the creator jesus christ is god and he is the word and he was with god and he was god And so this is this is the mystery solved that the godhead has two it has the father and jesus christ and he says this is from the beginning so when we go to the beginning in genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 and it says and god said god said let us plural let us make man in our image after our likeness in genesis 11 And verse 7, this is the the incident of the Tower of Babel, God says, let us go down and confound their language. Us. In Isaiah 6, in verse 8, when Isaiah's prophetic ministry was beginning, Isaiah says, also I've heard the voice of the Lord. And and what was he saying? Saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? There's an us. When, we speak, when, when God speaks of himself, he speaks of us. And at the end of the book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, it says, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. So God has a throne, the Lamb has a throne. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so here they are, the Word and God. You show me where anywhere in this there's Trinity. Trinity is a pagan concept of deity that is ancient and it's all over the world. And nowhere in the early church did they ever speak of Trinity. It's not until the pagans came into the church, the Greek pagans, and they brought this pagan philosophy with them. And then they, they, you know, Tertullian was the first one who came up with the, the Trinitas. He was making up words. He was so brilliant, he could make up words. He's the one that made up this concept of Trinity, uh, the word import. The actual, every every ancient culture has Tr- Trinitarian gods. Uh, tri- they call them triads. And so that then creeped into Christianity. And now it's sort of standard. You're not a Christian unless you believe in Trinity. But nowhere in the Bible does it ever speak of Trinity. speaks of us, definitely speaks of us. And the us is the word and God. The us is the Lamb and the Father. And that's very clear. Verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So this is what it got him. So for being loyal to God, this is what happened to him. He was exiled to Patmos. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. So some people will say, now, see, he was in the Spirit on Sunday. I was in the Spirit on Sunday. And I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. That's not what the Word says. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That is, I was in the Spirit on the day of the Lord. And there's all kinds of prophecies that speak of the day of the Lord. And so this, he, he now is there. Right? He's saying, I was propelled forward into the day of the Lord. And I was in the Spirit on the day of the Lord when I heard this great voice behind me. Ezekiel had a similar experience of being transported in vision to see things that were uh, privileged and, and God allowed him to see them. Here in Ezekiel chapter 40, he says, In the 25th year of our captivity, in the beginning of the year, in the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was smitten, in the same day the hand of the Lord was upon me, And brought me there in the visions of God brought he me into the land of Israel so he was transported he was was, uh, in captivity in Babylon but he was transported in vision to the land of Israel and sent me upon a very high mountain by which was the frame of a city on the south and he brought me there and behold there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass. So he's seeing a similar image to what John saw. With a line of flax in his hand and a measuring reed, and he stood in the gate. And the man said unto me, Son of man, behold with your eyes and hear with your ears. So see, He's, he's, he's transported in vision so that he can see and hear things. Very much like John being transported in vision on the day of the Lord so that he could see and hear things. He said unto me, Son of man, behold with your eyes, and hear with your ears, and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. For to the intent that I might show them unto you are you brought here. So the very exact same experience John is having. John is transported in vision into the day of the Lord for the intent that God might show him things, just like Ezekiel. Then he says, Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. So God has this relationship with Israel and now he's saying to to Ezekiel, go back and tell the house of Israel these things. Now with John it's the same thing. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega. The first and the last. So we're going to hear this repeatedly that God is Alpha and Omega. That Jesus is the first and the last. That is to say, the whole plan that God has with mankind, it begins with Jesus Christ and it ends with Jesus Christ. He's the firstborn from the dead and he's the king of kings. And the whole process begins and ends in Christ. Saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And What you see, write in a book. So these things, he's going to see these images that are symbolic. And Christ is saying, take these symbols that you see and write it in a book. And send it unto the seven churches, which are in Asia. In other words, just like Ezekiel, you've been brought to see and hear these things. So that's the very reason why you were brought here in vision so that you can go back and send it to the house of Israel. Now John is transported in vision into the day of the Lord, so that he can see and hear these things, that he can record them and send it back to the church. So this is very specific. This prophecy is for his faithful servants. So Christ is uh, sending, uh, uh, giving this to to, uh, John, so that John can give it to the church. What you see, John, write it in a book, so that it's permanent, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, and then he names these congregations, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. We'll get into the meaning of these different congregations and the, the communication to them later. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. So this voice is behind him. And he's saying, the things that you see, write them in a book and send them unto the seven churches which are in Asia. So when he hears this, it's a, this wonderful voice, this powerful voice that he hears. Like a, like, it sounds like a trumpet. and So he hears this trumpet sound. And then he turns to see the voice that spoke with him. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. So first, the first thing he hears is the sound like a trumpet telling him to write. The second thing, then, the first thing he sees are seven golden candlesticks. What are these? Again, this doesn't doesn't just come out of thin air. This goes back to the Torah. In Exodus 25, and verse 8, When Moses was instructed how to build the sanctuary, in in, in Exodus 25, verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. So God wants to dwell with Israel, his people. So Moses is instructed to have the people uh, construct a sanctuary so that God can dwell with them. Verse 9, according to all that I show you after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. So there's a very precise way I want you to make it. And you shall make the seven lamps thereof, and they shall light the lamps thereof, these are candlesticks, that they may give light over against it. And the tongs thereof and the snuff dishes thereof shall be of pure gold. Of a talent of pure gold shall he make it, with all these vessels. And look that you make them after their pattern, which was shown you in the mount. And he made his seven lamps, or candlesticks, and the snuffers, the things that put the light out, and the snuff dishes of pure gold. So this is where these candlesticks are. The symbology is that the candlesticks are in the temple, or the tabernacle, that God dwells in. And so the seven churches are represented symbolically as candlesticks to give light and that God will dwell in the midst of this tabernacle that gives light to the world. Revelation 1, carry on in verse 13. So he, he hears this sound of a trumpet telling him to write and send it to the seven churches. When he turns around to see who is it that's talking to him, he sees seven candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, that is, God dwells in the midst of the tabernacle, in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. It's the same being that Ezekiel saw. One like unto the Son of Man. Clothed with a garment down to the foot. He is a priest. In fact, he's, a high, he's the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so he's in his priestly garments. And he's clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. So so there's a, a around his breast, there's a golden sash girdle about belt. And I saw, uh, so, and then so this now, so Ezekiel saw one like the son of man. Daniel saw him as well. In Daniel 7, and verse 13, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, One like the Son of Man. Came with the clouds of heaven. Jesus Christ is coming back with the clouds of heaven. And came to the Ancient of Days. That's the Father. It's always the Father and the Lamb. The Word and God. There's always these two. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. In Daniel uh, 10 now, in verse 5, he describes what he's wearing. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of ufas. And so, in Revelation, this golden girdle. And then in verse 16, And behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision my sorrows are turned upon me, and I retain no strength so we see here that uh, he's like to see is that this is the son of man that, that that he's seeing back to revelation one his head and his hairs were white like wool as white as snow and his eyes were as a flame of fire this is what he saw and again this is all this you know his eyes aren't actually this is symbolic language he's It actually indicates his fierce anger. That his eyes are as a flame of fire indicates wrath. And his feet, like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice, as the sound of many waters. Again, It's the same being that Daniel saw. In Daniel 7, verse 9, he says, And I beheld till the thrones were cast down. So all the kingdoms of the world are cast down. And the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. So Christ and the Father are similar. They have hair that's white uh, as pure wool, and, and the garment is white as snow. His throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels is burning fire. And then, listen to what John says in 1 John 3, and verse 2. He says, Behold, now are we the sons of God. So that's what we are now, the sons of God. And it does not appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So John is seeing him as he is, And when he appears, we will see him as he is, and we will be like him, even though right now we don't fully understand what we're going to be like. We have this indication that we will see him for who and what he is, and we'll be like him. Read 1 Corinthians 15, and just read it for what it says, read the whole chapter, and it becomes very clear. We're not going to heaven. Jesus Christ is coming to earth. And we're going to reign on earth with him. And we're going to be like him. And we're going to have new bodies when we're also born from the dead. Here in Daniel 12, in verse 3, the prophetic word says that they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the heavens. And they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. We're going to have a brand new appearance. We're going to have a very different appearance than the appearance that we have now. The voice was like many waters. Again, this is not new. This is the God of Israel, and if we go back into Ezekiel, chapter 43 and verse 2. Ezekiel writes, "And behold, the glory of the God of Israel, the God of Israel, came from the way of the east." And his voice, his voice, what what was the voice of the God of Israel like? It was like a noise of many waters. And the earth shined with his glory. So this is the same God, the God of Israel. And, and when he spoke to Ezekiel, that's what Ezekiel did. His voice, it sounded like the voice of many waters. Very, very powerful sound. It's like many, many waters. And this is what John heard as well. Verse 16 of Revelation 1. And he had in his right hand seven stars. So he's in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shining in its strength. And again, we'll be like him, and those that turn many to righteousness, our faces will be like the sun that shines in its strength. But here we're having more. He's got got seven stars in his right hand. Remember, this is all symbolic. This is all signified. He's got seven stars in his right hand. And out of his mouth, there's a sharp sword, and it's two-edged. This is fulfilling the prophetic word in Isaiah. In Isaiah 49, verse 1, the prophet writes, Listen, O Isles, unto me. And hearken, you people from far, the Lord has called me from the womb. This is the, the humble servant, Jesus Christ. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother, has He made mention of my name? So He was, His father was actually told, "You will call Him Jesus." That is God saves. And He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. So this is fulfilled in Revelation. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand has he hid me, and made me a polished shaft in his quiver as he hid me. And he said unto me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So Christ came to be an Israelite, so that God can be glorified in Israel. God will not be glorified in any other nation. Except Israel. That would make God a liar. He has covenanted with Israel that despite their disobedience, He has not replaced them. He is going to fulfill His word in them, and He will be glorified in Israel, and God will be the God of Israel forever. And the whole world will be saved through Israel. <laughs> the sooner we recognize this, the sooner we'll come to understand God's word and his plan and the the narrative of the Bible. He says, uh, uh," so he says here, and then, sorry, I'm just reading here in uh, Isaiah, the prophetic word in Isaiah. Let me just go back to where I was here. Yes, he says, you are my servant, O Israel. That's why Christ had to come as an Israelite, faithful to the covenant, faithful to the Torah, so that, He could fulfill the promises, or first of all, the conditions of the covenant, so that God could then save Israel through him, and be glorified in Israel through him. Verse 17, back to Revelation 1. So John hears him, and he hears this instruction, that the things that he has seen, he must write in the book. He turns to see who is talking with him, When he turns, he sees seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of those lampstands, he sees one like the Son of Man, holding seven stars in his right hand. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his face shone like the sun in its strength. So John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. In other words, I fainted. I collapsed. I passed out. This was just too much for John's senses to handle. He just collapsed. And he laid his right hand upon me saying, Fear not. You know, when God deals with man,
1: when it, it is never a
0: record of God dealing with man and choking and strangling him and forcing his way upon him and threatening him. This is demonic activity. When God deals with man directly, He's always very gentle. God knows how powerful he is. Even when his angels deal with man directly, they're always very gentle with man. So any prophet that comes along saying, I have this interaction with God, and God was strangling me and trying to kill me and trying to destroy me and force his way upon me, well, that doesn't sound like the God of Israel. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last. And hear this repeatedly. And this moniker of being the fir- first and the last, it's just not something made up in the book of Revelation. It goes back to the prophetic word. In Isaiah 41 and verse 4, the prophet writes, Who has wrought and done it? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. So when we see in Revelation Christ saying, I'm the first and the last, we go back into the prophetic word and we realize this is is God. This is the servant. This is the one that's going to bring the prophetic word to pass. This is the only one, the God of Israel, the only God that can declare the end from the beginning because he controls everything. So, he controls everything. And so, when when we're in the middle, no matter how dangerous and chaotic the middle may appear, it's all unfolding according to God's plan. Because nothing can thwart God's plan. And he declared it from the beginning. He declared the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, that which is not yet done, saying, my plans shall stand. In Isaiah 44, in verse 6, he says, Thus says the Lord... The King of Israel and His Redeemer. God is Israel's Redeemer, the Lord of Hosts. I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Beside the God of Israel, there is no God. They are all false, they're demonic, they don't exist. It's deception. There is only one God, and it's the God of Israel. And proof that he is the only God is his ability to declare the end from the beginning. And so everything that's happening around us and what's what's codified in the book of Revelation was actually written from the beginning. And so the key to understanding the book of Revelation is to go back to the prophetic words that were written anciently. And all Revelation is doing is packaging all of them and putting them into a time order and sequence in chronological order. So now we can understand how it all unfolds. But nobody can do this in detail to specify how the history of mankind will unfold. Only one can do this. There's only one book in the whole world that has the ability to do this in detail. It's the Bible. Thus says the Lord, this is Isaiah 44 verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and Israel's Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. So that when, when Christ says I'm the first and the last, what he's saying is, there's no one else besides God, that I'm the God of Israel. And there's nobody else that has this, this uh, ability And I declare that ability by telling you I'm the first and the last. Back to Revelation 1, verse 18. I am he that lives and was dead. Remember, he's the firstborn from the dead. I'm he, so he's comforting John and saying, fear not. I am he that lives and was dead. And so when they killed him, they thought that's the end of it. No, 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 no. He's the first and the last. The death was just something that happened in the middle. I am he that lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. That is, of Hades, the grave, and of death. So he has the keys. Meaning, he can open the grave and put people in it, and close it and lock it. But it also means he can unlock the grave and open it, and bring people out. He has these keys. And this, again, is a prophetic word in Hosea. The prophet Hosea, chapter 13, verse 14, he says, I will ransom them, that is Israel. And, and, and this is, again, if you look at uh, Ezekiel, uh, chapter 40, I believe it is, when they, the, the valley of dry bones. This is all the prophetic word. He has the key to the grave. Hosea, Hosea, Hosea 13, verse 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. How can you do that? Well, you've got to have the keys of the grave. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. I'll redeem them from death. O oh, death, I will be your plagues. O oh, grave, I will be your destruction. Repentance shall be hid from my eyes. So notice... God says, death, I will be your plagues, and grave, I will be your destruction. And so here, when he says, I have the keys of hell and of death, this is tying back to Hosea, where he speaks of the grave, Hades, and he speaks of death. God has the keys to these. So this is how the prophecy in Hosea 13:14 that God will ransom Israel from the power of the grave and redeem them from death. And he will be the destruction of the grave and will be the plagues of death because he has the keys of the grave and of death. Revelation 1, verse 19. Write the things which you have seen. So again, this is the second time he's getting this instruction, how important it is for John. And John is declared to be a faithful recorder, faithful witness of the things that he saw because he's been instructed directly by God, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. And this is really this is a very critical verse that a lot of people would just kind of read over. But let's just uh, slow down with it a little bit. John is to write the things which he has seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So there's a difference now between the things that he's seen and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So when the scripture says, at the very beginning, when we were reading that, he said at the very beginning that um, he's given this revelation to Christ, who gave it to an angel, to give it to John, to give it to us. Why? So that we can know the things which will shortly come to pass. And then when we're blessed for reading these things and hearing these words and keeping these things, because the time is at hand. And then people say, well, yeah, well, I don't see any. I don't see the big climax again yet. But notice, he's to write the things which shall be hereafter. This is the, the caboose. But also the things which are. That there are things that are happening now in John's time. That this, this is happening now. Write those things. And the things that you've seen, some of the things are going to go back in time. Some of the symbols that John sees are historical. They've already happened. Some of the things are present. They're going to be happening now. And some of the things are future. They're they're the caboose. They're at the end. So when the word says that these things must shortly come to pass, it's not just speaking of the caboose at the end. It's speaking from the very beginning of, of everything that he saw. These things now are going to unfold. So these things are they're happening now. And he's writing to the seven churches, which are about to experience the unleashing of some of this prophetic word. It's going to unleash upon them. And then it's going to be running its course for the next 2,000 years. And then finally, they're going say, okay, well, how long is this train? And then finally we'll see the taboos. And then it will be all over. And the train has passed. And now we can get on with the future. So John, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now he begins to unpack. This is the first unpacking of the symbols. So John saw these things. He heard this voice like a trumpet. So he turns around. He sees seven golden candlesticks. In the midst of the candlesticks, he sees one like the Son of Man, having seven stars in his right hand. Uh, he's, he's dressed with, with a girdle, uh, clothing down to his feet he's got a girdle around his breasts and he's got a a sword coming out of his mouth and it's like what is this then he explains And, and his eyes are like a flame of fire and then he says the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand if you're wondering what those are and the seven golden candlesticks the seven stars are the angels Of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks. Remember there were seven spirits before his throne. The seven stars are the angels. Of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks. If you're wondering what they are. The seven candlesticks which you saw. Are the seven churches. Christ is in the midst. Of the seven churches. And there's fire in his eyes. And he's got the seven stars in his right hand which are the messengers to the seven churches. And now John is beginning to understand. And when we come back next week, God willing, we'll get into Revelation 2, where now he's going to understand or unpack the messages that these angels must take to each of the seven churches in Asia. What a wonderful, wonderful, powerful, powerful uh, introduction to this prophetic word, And uh, we're just going to read it line by line and understand what it is God has for us. I'll be right back. For joining us for this uh, chapter of one of the Book of Revelation, a very very profound book, and what we'll do, God willing, next week, we'll get into chapter two. God bless.